Oh, that sounded amazing. I recommend it coming, standing up here while that's going on. That's great. So you need to become a preacher, some of you young folks. All right, we have a lot to be thankful for today. Look at this room full of young people. Praise God. We have had a really good rally. Jason has done an amazing job talking about godly relationships that feed us through our parents, through the Lord and His Word and prayer, through mentors, um, and talking about issues with fear and how to stand firm, not be distracted by the things of this culture. He's just done a great job. And Jesse, the song leading, the energy that he's brought to it, that, uh, this has been a real blessing as well. Um, I'm not going to get everyone, but a lot of people have... Uh, really invested to make this uh, 2019 Eugene rally something special. And so uh, Denise Foreman, behind the scenes, online, Facebook, registration, busy behind everything. Thank you, Denise. Uh, Brittany was our game master. She did an amazing job with games. Shauna, Shauna Staley was out back, and she did, ran a scribal tra- table where people could write verses of encouragement. She, she's still set up there, so any of the members of the church who want to write a verse, she wants something up there. So, uh, Our group leaders, our chaperones, Roy has been here emptying garbage and moving around <laughs> tables and stuff. Mike and... Uh, Jamie in the audiovisual booth, and then Sharon Gregory, my wife, and a lot of others, the kitchen staff. They have done a good job feeding us, and uh, boy, what a blessing to have this time together. Well, we are continuing our series this morning in uh, John's Gospel. I've titled this series, uh, The Hidden Music of John's Gospel. So you've probably heard at different times that John is written on levels or layers of meaning. So you can kind of read it at a kind of surface level, and then there's other levels that you can read in John's Gospel. And so we'll see a little bit of that layering this morning as we find ourselves in the fourth chapter. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So he's in northern Judea somewhere, uh, and John the Baptist ministry is baptizing people, and now this ministry of Jesus is baptizing people. And so this is going on, and some of John the Baptist's disciples are a little upset with the competition of this new guy, the new anointed one, and uh, they complained to John a little bit. And we looked last week at the humility of John the Baptist, who said, he must become greater, and I must become less. So uh, we're already aware of this uh, certain reserve on John the Baptist's disciples' part, and now learning that the Pharisees were focusing on Jesus as well, and Jesus' rising popularity, he decided it's best to leave 
and to head north. Jesus didn't come to compete with John the Baptist. He didn't come to gain notoriety with the Pharisees or the religious leaders. He didn't come to make a name for himself. That was not a part of his agenda. Rather, doing the work of his Father is what the life of Jesus was all about. And so, because he's focused on doing the work of God, he ends up going some strange places and hanging out with some strange people, which we will find in today's narrative. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Well, there's a lot of animosity and prejudice between Jews and Samaritans. And uh, uh, some people think that, you know, they wanted to disassociate themselves so much with the Samaritans that Jews would actually cross onto the other side of the Jordan to avoid going through Samaria. That doesn't seem like a concern that Jesus had. So uh, Jacob's well, which was mentioned, is still there today. People can go and draw water from it and they can drink that water if you want. Uh, it's, it's, it's a known location. And uh, that different times in church history, there have been churches that were built on this site and they were destroyed different times by Muslims. But today in the shadow of, of uh, the mountain there, there's a crypt and uh, there's an unfinished Orthodox church that this, this well is there that is fed by an underground spring. And so even today, uh, it's, it's well known that this is, this is Jacob's well, and it's still uh, active, and it's remarkably reliable. We're told in verse 6b that it was the sixth hour when Jesus had arrived at this well, Jacob's well. And there's a couple things that I want to draw our attention to by that. First, it means that it was noon, probably the the heat of the day. So Jesus would have already been walking for hours to come to this place, which would explain why he's tired and why he's thirsty. And this also may communicate something of the social standing of the woman who comes to draw water from the well. Typically in uh, the culture at that time, women would go in groups together. We would see this in Africa all the time. It was a big social event for the women to go draw water from their sources. Uh, so they would typically go in the mornings and in the evenings and would no, no one would be there during the heat of the day. So we find this woman there alone in the middle of the day. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. 
How can you ask me for a drink? John tells us then, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In fact, the animosity between these groups is so great that in chapter 8 we'll find later on that to insult Jesus and to prove that Jesus is a heretic, they label him a Samaritan. They say, you're a Samaritan and the devil is in you. John chapter 8 verse 48. But the amazing thing about this story to me is the way that Jesus approaches this woman. Jesus doesn't come as an authority. He doesn't come leading off with his answers to this woman's problems. Instead, he addresses this woman in a humble way. I am thirsty. Will you help me? And she's taken back by the request. We can tell by the response. Jesus is acting in a way that she was not expecting a Jewish man to act. He is acting against cultural norms and with a humble request, the Master Jesus begins to break down walls of separation begins to break down assumptions and prejudices. And I wonder if there is a lesson in Jesus' example for us in the way that you and I need to approach people who are hurting and people who are broken. He doesn't lead off with judgment and condemnation. He doesn't condescend. He doesn't give moral lessons. He approaches this woman is a tired and thirsty beggar. Can we learn to lead with simple conversation and a listening ear rather than from a place of power or authority or knowledge who has the answers to fix your situation? I think we need to learn how to build the relationship with people. And as we learn who people are, it will begin to help us see past the prejudices that we maybe have that blind us to the beauty of another person standing in front of us. That's what Jason talked about this weekend, about being present. We're so distracted by whatever the device is. We're so distracted. But to be fully present to a person, to give them your full and undivided attention. It's really a beautiful gift. On some level, most people are aware of their own brokenness. We try to hide it. We try to hide our own brokenness because these are things we're ashamed of. And so we put on these masks. We try to manage an image. We have a a Facebook profile, we have all of these things that we do to kind of manage this image. I'm fine, you're fine. It's the four-letter word of the church. It's a bad word, I'm fine. Maybe something bad is going on inside. Are we even in a place, in a context where we we are able to share that burden with anyone? But whenever we approach people like they are a statistic or they are a problem to be solved, or they are a demographic, or they are a convert to be one, 
whenever we devise these categories to put people in, walls and masks will always come up and will always result from this because only genuine love and concern can begin to tear those walls down. We can learn a lot if you just read through the Gospels about the different ways that Jesus approaches people, the different ways that people approach him. And in the case of this broken woman of Samaria, it's not as a superior from above, but Jesus asks a simple request of this woman, something that a lowly beggar would ask. Who is Jesus harsh with in the Gospels? Who is he gentle with? How does he respond to religious pride and vain glory? And how does he respond to the marginalized, the weak, those who are carrying burdens, those who are broken? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his flocks? And his herds. Now Jesus begins to shift the conversation. And already he's beginning to talk about a different kind of water. Not normal water. But special water. That only God is able to give. And we see that Jesus wants to reveal to this woman. The mystery of the gift of God and the mystery of who Jesus is. If you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it was that you're actually talking to, Jesus wants to be known. He wants to be sought. But she doesn't understand the shift in the conversation, talking about one kind of water and then another. She's still asking the right questions, though. She thinks, yeah, this is a well that's deep, and it'll take something special to draw the waters out of this well. She had no idea how deep this well really is. The well that Jesus is talking about, in fact, is so deep that only God himself can reach it. And when she says, are you greater than Jacob? She is, in fact, talking to someone who is greater than Jacob. But she asked this question, where can you get this living water? That is, of course, the million-dollar question. That's the question that we're all trying to answer in our different ways. What will make this life work? What gives my life purpose? What gives my life joy? I want this living water. How do I get this living water? So Jesus goes on to explain, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. 
Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Remember a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Nicodemus. Talking to, Jesus was talking to him about being born again, born of water and the Spirit. And now in this text this week, we find water being mentioned again and Spirit being mentioned again. Pay attention to those words. They keep coming up in John's Gospel. And in the hidden music of John, words that repeat themselves are significant for some reason. So living water is an analogy that the prophets had used to describe God. Jeremiah chapter 2 says these words, My people have committed two sins. First, they have forsaken me the spring of living water. And second, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, people are trying to do things in their own power, rule their own lives apart from God. And when you place yourself on the throne of the universe, you will put yourself into a broken cistern situation where you're constantly and desperately trying to fill up your cistern any way you can, fill your heart any way you can, and it won't hold It won't hold water. As we'll see in a moment, this Samaritan woman was trying to fill the whole of her heart with the love of a whole series of different men. So the thirst that Jesus is talking about is not a natural thirst for water, but a thirst for what only God himself can give. This thirst is a restlessness of spirit. It's a deep aching in your soul. It's a gnawing anxiety that won't let go. This thirst can only be quenched by God himself. And when the Holy Spirit satisfies your thirst, when the Holy Spirit satisfies your thirst, life-giving water gushes out of you, just leaks all over the place on the people around you. Just as water gives life, so the sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven bring life with them everywhere they go. If you have living water, people will be drawn to you. You become magnetic in social situations. People feel strangely refreshed in your presence. Everywhere you go, evil, apathy, and indifference begin to be undone. Everywhere you go, things begin to get better. Because through the generosity of God, If you receive the Holy Spirit, if you are submissive to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will flow through you. He will work through you. 
and he will give himself to others. And the life you receive, it will be the life that you give. So Jesus is talking to this woman about a thirst that she doesn't even realize she has. One that she doesn't know how to articulate at this point. So the question we need to ask ourselves for, the question we need to ask ourselves about, uh, teens, this is for you. What are you thirsty for? What What are your desires? What are you thirsty for? What's the hunger of your soul that a big gulp from 7-Eleven will not satisfy? What are you doing and what are you using to try to satisfy the thirst of your broken and restless spirit? See, behind our desires, our desires to be comfortable, our desires to be secure, our desires for pleasure. There is a deeper desire. There's a God-shaped hole in every one of our hearts. There's a thirst of soul that we were created with that can only be satisfied by the living water of the Holy Spirit. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. The Samaritan woman is still thinking in terms of just the physical. Just like Jesus in chapter 2 when he starts claiming that his own body is the temple. Destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. The people, they just, they, it took us 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to rebuild it in three days. Just like Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of... How can a man be born again? He's thinking just on this level. Still this Samaritan woman, she's thinking about a different kind of water than the, G- the water Jesus is talking about. We'll see this again in chapter 6 when Jesus starts to talk about his own body and his blood as true food and true drink. And the people think he's talking about some kind of cannibalism. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? So we see again and again in John's Gospel, Jesus is talking to people in a way that he's inviting them to a place of deeper understanding, of new understanding, of a spiritual understanding of reality. And now to do this with this woman in particular, Jesus radically changes the direction of the conversation that they're having. Because it says earlier that Jesus knows what's in the hearts of people. Jesus knows what's there. So he's able to move the conversation right into places that allow for the greatest healing. The woman says this, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right. And when you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands. 
And the man you now have, Mao have, is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So Jesus has just walked into the Samaritan woman's greatest shame, her greatest sin, her greatest sense of hopelessness, guilt, and despair, and also into the place of this woman's greatest need. And like a precision scalpel, Jesus goes in to remove the tumor growing on this woman's soul. She's been looking for love with men. Men who have died or men who have divorced her. Men who had used her as she was searching to fill the hole in her heart. Jean Vanier says, The promise of Jesus to the Samaritan woman and to each one of us to become a source of life for others can only come about if we are humble and recognize our poverty and brokenness and accept ourselves just as we are. Jesus invites her and each one of us to revisit our past in truth, not just to analyze it or remain trapped in it, but to be liberated from its hold. Jesus gently and lovingly touches this woman's inner wound of brokenness. So in a way, the Samaritan woman, she's a representative of each one of us because each one of us has sin in our lives. You have something that you have been hiding. You've been hiding it from other people. You've been hiding it from yourself. You've been trying to hide it from God. But in order to receive the living waters that flow from Jesus Christ, we need to recognize everything in us that is chaotic and dead. Because when we are full of ourselves, when we're full of, I've got this, thank you very much, when we're full of our own power and our own certitudes, when we think, I can do this on my own, we don't recognize our need for new life, for new life-giving water. It's only when we present to Jesus our emptiness, our helplessness, our broken hearts, that He can fill us with the strength of the Spirit and touch us with His love. Teens, 57 of you this weekend, I'm so excited about that. You need living water in your life. So how do you get that? You begin by being honest with Jesus about your brokenness. Begin by being honest about your fears, your anxieties, your doubts, your loneliness, your social awkwardness, your pimples, your voice that cracks like Jesse's, whatever it is. If you will learn to be honest with Jesus Christ in prayer, He will take those things, those insecurities, that brokenness away from you, and He will replace it with His living water, His life-giving water.
if you can be honest with the Lord in prayer, he will help you stand firm. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. It seems that the Samaritan woman didn't want to keep talking about herself. She's uncomfortable with this conversation. And so instead, she brings up a theological issue. And in the humility of Jesus, he allows her to lead the conversation in another direction. But he does it in a way that he is still helping her and helping us. Again, we see in Jesus' story, in the, this narrative here, that Jesus himself is taking the place of the temple. He becomes the site of God's presence. Jesus has become the ladder between heaven and earth. So it's not in Jerusalem. It's not in this mountain anymore. That time will be passing. Do you remember the story of Jacob in the Old Testament? This dream vision that he has of a ladder going up to heaven and angels ascending and descending on this ladder. Do you guys remember that story? And what did he name that place? Bethel, Hebrew for the house of God, the house of God. Genesis 28, 17 says, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jesus Christ becomes the house of God. Jesus Christ is the gate of heaven. And the true worshiper will no longer be focused on the true worship that takes place to God. It will no longer be focused on a geographic location, but on the person of Jesus Christ himself as the house of God. In Jesus' flesh, and then his living in us through the Holy Spirit, the prophecy of Ezekiel 37 is fulfilled that says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will bless them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. It is the fulfillment of John's vision in Revelation. That in the new Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, it says, there is no temple to be found there. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. John 4.24 says, God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now John gives us another window into understanding what God is like. Other places John tells us that God is light and God is love we are now told that God is spirit. 
And the true worship of God must be done in spirit and, and in truth. And this means wholehearted and sincere where we honestly and wholeheartedly, without reserve, place our whole self and everything we are into the hands of God. So this woman, she's waking up now, and she realizes this is not just a prophet. This is something more. And so she puts something out there. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I am the one who am speaking to you. In John, every time Jesus says those words, I am, this is a hidden reference to Jesus being God himself. Most strikingly, we see this in John 8:58 which he doesn't hide this at all, but openly says, before Abraham came into existence, I am. But what is most interesting to me about this story is who it is that Jesus chooses to entrust himself to. In the hidden music of John's gospel, we're being invited, I think, in this text to compare Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman. We are being invited by Jesus to reconsider our prejudices. Who does Jesus entrust himself to? Nicodemus is well-educated. He's powerful. He's respected. He's orthodox. He's theologically trained. He's a man, he's a Jew, and he is a ruler. The woman of Samaria, she's unschooled, she has little power, she's despised, she belongs to a folk religion. She's a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. See, both of these people, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, they are in need of Jesus. And Jesus, in fact, helps both of them. He helps them to greater understanding. But in the end, it's only to the Samaritan woman that he entrusts himself fully to by revealing to her that he is the Messiah. In John's Gospel, Jesus reveals himself fully to two people. A moral outcast woman and a man who's blind. John chapter 2, verse 24 says, Jesus would not entrust himself to the crowds, for he knew all men. In the end of chapter chapter 2, we read that Jesus, when he was doing these signs, that people wanted to come see him. Jesus had become kind of a spectacle. He wanted, they wanted him to do something to wow him. Do something to impress us and we'll follow you. And then he would not entrust himself to Nicodemus, this teacher from Israel. But he tells them in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, you people, you don't, you leaders of, of Israel, you Pharisees, you do not accept our testimony. 
I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will, I, will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? But now the person of the wrong race, the wrong religion, the wrong gender, and the wrong morality, to this person, Jesus declares himself plainly. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I am he who speaks with you. So how do you come to Jesus? How do you approach Jesus in your life? Like the fickle crowd? Jesus, will you entertain me? If you just do something amazing, then I'll follow you fully, because then I'll know. Give me something, Jesus. Wine for this party. Give me bread, give me fish. Basically, give me the goodies, and then I will follow you. Or do you come to him like Jesus, who claims to know something about, we know that you are from God, otherwise you couldn't do these. We know you claim to know something about Jesus, and you approach him with your education and your power and your credentials and in your pride and your arrogance. Do you think you have it all figured out? Do you have an attitude in your life that says, thanks God, but no thanks, I've got this. I can handle this myself. Or like Nicodemus, will you only come to Jesus at nighttime? Because you're a little embarrassed of who he is. You're a little embarrassed about what he might ask of you. You're a little embarrassed about what people might think of you. Or will you approach Jesus like the Samaritan woman who asks Jesus to give him, to give her living water. Because if you want Jesus to entrust himself to you, if you want to know Jesus as Messiah who will explain everything to you to help guide you in your life, then you need to have the humility to put your greatest sin and your greatest shame into the hands of the living God. And it can be scary. It can be scary trusting your greatest pain and your greatest vulnerability to God. Jesus, uh, Jesus wants to help us with those things. Jason did a good job this weekend talking about fear and the ways that fear causes us to act. We're invited to give that all over to Jesus. The tragedy is that we are so possessed by fear that we do not trust our innermost self as an intimate place, but anxiously wander around hoping to find it where it is not, where we are not. We try to find that intimate place in knowledge, competence, notoriety, success, friends, sensations, pleasure, dreams, or artificially induced states of consciousness. Thus, we become strangers to ourselves, people who have an address but are never home. And because we're never home, we cannot be addressed by the true voice of love. Just like the Samaritan woman, Jesus can see right into your heart. Think about that.
He sees what's right there. So find some small way to entrust those fragile things of your life and your heart. Entrust some of your brokenness into the hands of Jesus and then ask him to fill that hole in your heart with living water. Surrender yourself entirely into the hands of God because this is the kind of worshiper God desires, someone who will worship him in spirit and in truth. We have an amazing God who loves us so much that he wants to carry everything for us. We have but one thing that, that he asks us to give. Ourself. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. So I don't know where, where, how you come to us this morning. I don't know what your needs are. Uh, this is a church where if you need to put on the Lord in baptism, if you need uh, to have a request prayed over, if you have some special need, you have an opportunity, you can bring that to us and we will address those things to the glory of God uh, with his grace and help as we stand and sing together. And uh, it's great to be with all of our guests this morning. Thank you and praise God.